0: On November 8, 2009, a climate change conference was held in Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, to bring attention to the quickest and most effective solution to global warming the organic vegan diet. Titled Humanity's Leap to the Golden Era, Washington, D.C. Climate Change Conference, the event brought together experts of science and health, as well as international ambassadors, media members, and artists that included Ambassador de DeBrum of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, Ambassador Jacques Cross of the Republic of Suriname, Ambassador Isbin Williams of St. Kitts Nevis, Dr. Steven Schneider, lead scientist of the reports of the Nobel Prize winning UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Dr. Michael Greger, Director of Public Health and Animal Agriculture for the Humane Society of the USA, and author of Bird Flu, A Virus of Our Own Hatching. Dr. Ruby Lathan, Nutrition Policy Manager of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Dr. Peter Carter, Director of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And Dr. Noam Moore, Adjunct Professor of Physics at New York University distinguished speakers address such aspects as environment, health, lifestyle, and spirituality. In addition, engaging video messages on the need to address global meat consumption were contributed by esteemed figures including former Indian Environment Minister Maneka Gandhi, former European Parliament Member Jens Holm, and leading American nutrition researcher Dr. T. Colin Campbell. The highlight of the afternoon was an informative question and answer session via video conference with the guest of honor, Supreme Master Ching Hai, who had graciously set aside her busy schedule to discuss the ways that humankind could transition to a brighter era. We now invite you to join us for a video conference with Supreme Master Ching Hai, titled Humanity's Leap to the Golden Era. Washington, D.C. Climate Change Conference on November 8, 2009 in Washington, D.C., USA.
1: Welcome to Humanity's Leap to the Golden Era, Washington, D.C. Climate Change Conference. We are in the magnificent Grand Hyatt Hotel in Washington, D.C., just a few blocks away from Capitol Hill. We are so glad that you can join us here where it's autumn, a time of
2: abundance and magnificent fall colors. We are delighted to have you with us today. In addition to our guests here in Washington, D.C., we are being joined by countless viewers from all around the world. This event is being broadcast live globally on Supreme Master Television through 14 free-to-air satellites and dozens of cable channels on every continent. Supreme Master Television is also available online. So let's begin with some uplifting music. Our first group, the Applaudir Music Septet, Is from Washington, D.C., USA. This eclectic and talented group of musicians performs a wide variety of high caliber classical compositions.
1: This afternoon, they will be performing Beethoven's Septet first movement. Please give a warm applause to Applaud Your Music. Thank you, applaud your music, septet. Wow, I feel energized already. This group, which consists of people from several different nationalities, reminds me of the United States. You know, this generous and noble country is a veritable symbol of freedom and opportunity. Called the land of the free and the home of the brave, the United States of America has willingly opened its doors to people from every culture, language, religion, and status.
2: Yes, it is a nation of many notable accomplishments. Let's have a look at some of them in the following video.
3: I'm very grateful to courageous leaders in the world for stepping out of their boundary and to speak out for the sake of everyone. Even if the public do not appreciate their goodwill, heaven will take note. And they will have a great reward hereafter. It is, of course, very difficult to be in the position of authority. To be a leader is to be endowed with bravery, compassion, and nobility. That's why you are a leader. It's not easy, of course, to be in the position of leader. That's why leaders are few. Yeah? You see, in a nation, there's only one king, one queen some princes, some prince, one president, one prime minister. Very few leaders compared to the multitude of this world. But fewer even still are brave leaders, courageous leaders, righteous leaders, and wise leaders. To such a wise and courageous ones, we offer full support and respect we pray that heaven give them more strength, more wisdom to carry out their noble duty. Because as I told you, leaders are few, and few are still are those who are wise and courageous. Being a leader, we must know what is good for our subjects and what is not, and what is good we have to encourage them to do, facilitate them to do. And what is bad, we have to stop to protect them. That is the true meaning of a leader.
2: May heaven continue to bless the United States and all nations of the world.
1: Here in prestigious and historical Washington, D.C., we have many distinguished guests who have graced us with their presence this afternoon. We would
2: like to introduce some of them to you. Please join us in welcoming Ambassador Debrum from the Marshall Islands, (laughs) Ambassador Cross from the Republic of Suriname. And Ambassador Williams from St. Kitts and Nevis. We would also like to welcome distinguished diplomats representing more than 25 additional countries throughout Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. We are truly grateful for your presence at this event. Although he could not be here today, we received a personal greeting from another distinguished person, the UN Secretary General, Mr. Ban Ki-moon. This respected leader from Korea is very concerned about climate change... And has stressed that a unified world effort is the only way to resolve it. He sent the following message quote, to master and all in attendance and viewers with thanks for your kind understanding and our best wishes for a successful event. Unquote.
1: We thank Mr. Ban Ki Moon and all other leaders of the United Nations who are working so diligently
2: to halt global warming now let's find out more about the current climate change situation by watching the following video
1: are worth a thousand words. Our first guest speaker will give us more insight into the current situation. Dr. Stephen Schneider is a professor of Interdisciplinary Environmental Studies at Stanford University, a senior fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment, and the founder and editor of the interdisciplinary journal Climate Change. He has also contributed to all four of the reports of the Nobel Prize-winning United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Stephen Schneider.
4: Thank you, all of you, for coming Uh, It's my task today to try in a short time to sketch out uh, a large number of aspects of the climate change issue. And let me begin by saying before we try to figure out how to fix it, we've got to make sure something's broken. I'm asked all the time whether talking to Congress or members of Parliament or ministers or media and also just talking to plain folks. Uh, well, is the science of global warming settled? Very standard question. And I always like to try it out on my audiences and see where they are uh, so we know where we're going to be. I was in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago and, and asked them, and maybe 70% of people, when I said not every detail, but the basic ideas, raised their hands. And I tried it in, in Oklahoma, and maybe only 7% raised their hands. And I had same information. So people have different perceptions. So, with this group, how many here think that the science of of global warming is largely a settled and well-understood affair. Okay, a fair number. And the reason for that is whenever we're talking about a complex issue like climate change or where you're talking about health care or delivery of of services for sustainable development, there is no single answer. There's a large number of possibilities. And in climate system science, there are components that are well-established where we really do have settled science. What real scientists do is they separate out into multi-possible outcomes a wide range of possibilities, and then we assign confidence to these. So what we do is called risk analysis. What can happen multiplied times the probability? That's a scientist's job whether or not you want to take those risks with a planetary life support system and whether you care more about protecting sustainability, you care more about protecting short-term return on investment. So with that frame, let me move quickly uh, through the, uh, the program and try to show you some examples of well-established science. So in the first slide, it points out that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of, a, of hundreds of scientists from around the world which writes reports And these reports get reviewed by literally thousands of reviewers. And every one of those comments has to be justified. And I've been a lead author in this four times. So what has the IPCC concluded? Well, they said that the Earth's warmed up 0.75C, 1.4 Fahrenheit since 1850. This is not speculative. This is established beyond doubt. And that's consistent not just with the thermometers of the world, but the rising sea levels as the oceans warm, the melting glaciers, and the fact that plants are blooming earlier a couple of weeks in the spring, those that are changing, and that birds come back on migration. There's a large round of evidence. The rate of increase, according to our theory, should increase with time. That has also happened. And that doesn't prove it, but that's strong circumstantial evidence, and humans are part of the story. And IPCC concluded, based on that and other things that we call fingerprints, that human activity is responsible for most of the warming since the 1970s. This is evidence. Somebody said to me at a talk the other day, "Uh, I don't believe in global warming. So I simply said, well, do you believe in evidence? Yes. I said, do you believe in the preponderance of evidence? I mean, half of American prudence is based upon civil trials where the standard of evidence is preponderance, meaning more than even the vast preponderance is determined by those people who actually do the research is that it's warming and that humans are responsible for most of the last 50 years when we use the atmosphere as a free sewer to dump our tailpipe and smokestack wastes or the, uh, the emissions that come from land clearing. That is very well established. What else do we know? Well, it's not just the science part uh, itself. It's also what it means. That 0.75 degrees C was predicted literally 30 years ago, and I have a new book out called Science as a Contact Sport just this week, and I tell the story about how 30 years ago this issue was discussed in many hearings. I first testified to then Congressman Albert Gore Jr.'s hearing in 1981 during the Reagan administration on these issues. Nobody can say we didn't know we knew very well, 35 years ago, in almost the same terms of the debate now. And what the book is about is why we failed to accomplish the mission. Uh, In any case, one of the predictions was there would be longer and warmer summers. That's a prescription for increased forest fires. There's been about a factor of four to five increase in forest fires in the U.S. West. Now, Can we say that's all due to global warming? No, because people have moved where they don't belong, and that creates more fires. And we fought fires allowing the fuel to build up. So like all complicated systems analysis, there are multiple explanations, but global warming is one of the main ones. So, again, you have to look at these and try to figure out how to solve them by multiple solutions. Uh, Greenland and the Arctic are melting, as we saw in the video, faster than predicted, We're performing an experiment on a laboratory, and that laboratory is Earth, and we and all the other living things are along for the ride, and that's where value judgments and political action takes place. So there's been also an observed increase in the strongest hurricanes and in drought and flood incidents. So what else do we know? So warming is of global mean past one or two degrees. This is something that becomes... Uh, in the range that we can expect at a minimum. We have built into the pipeline at least one and probably two more degrees warming because of the inertia of the system. As a result of that, we are going to have to learn to adapt to that that we cannot prevent. And most of the work that's been done in the uh, scientific community suggests that beyond one or two degrees, it gets very difficult to adapt. In fact, if you're a coral reef, it's already getting difficult to adapt. So it depends what the system is and where. Some systems can go beyond on to, some can't even get to two, and the more and more we keep adding, the more the number of thresholds that we're going to cross where adaptation is no longer possible. So, a major component in the Copenhagen meeting will be trying to get strategies to help us adapt. But remember, while we have to adapt to what we can't prevent, We have to prevent what we can't adapt to. So adaptation is actually the other side of the coin, and it tells you you need to mitigate, and you need to mitigate down to one or two degrees, which means a dramatic change from the current way of producing our energy systems. That can't happen in a decade, but it certainly can happen in a few decades, and this decade cannot be wasted like the last 30 years arguing about it. We've got to move forward. Well, here's the picture of the unequivocal. That's the warming of the last century and a half. And what's interesting about that is if you look at the very right end, you'll notice that since 1998 there hasn't been much warming. If you look from 1992 to 2002, it warmed up so fast. What we're looking at is a natural variability superimposed on a multidecadal trend. The multi-decadal trend is due to human activities predominantly. The short-term fluctuations due to nature. The biggest problem is the tipping points. How many degrees warming before the meltwater in Greenland that goes down will lead to the point that it actually moves toward an irreversible, can't stop it, melt with something like four to five meters of sea level rise. Unfortunately nobody knows where that tipping point is, only that it exists. My own personal view twenty-five percent chance if we warm it in another degree, sixty percent chance two degrees, ninety percent chance three degrees. Sounds like I'm an optimist, right? We have a whole bunch of degrees to go, I wouldn't rule that at one to five percent, it's already too late. So Are we crazy? We're talking about the planetary life support system, and there are people who want to be 95% certain before acting on the grounds that it isn't proved. Well, even if there were a 5% chance that walking into a room with somebody coughing uh, where you wanted to get your dinner, you are going to get the swine flu, you'd skip dinner. We hedge all the time on low probability outcomes when they're highly consequential, and it's a false frame to say that it isn't proved because every single detail is not in what can we do? Well, our lifestyle matters. We have to be energy efficient at home. We have to make certain we're good consumers of products, that we read the labels, that we buy the Energy Star, that we try to get the the hybrid and the plug-in cars. We use less imported foodstuffs. And for me personally, I've also reduced my meat consumption. I've lost weight and feel much better. Making significant difference matters. So the advocacy of this organization on eating fruits and vegetables, that's aligned with the advocacy of helping local jobs and reducing our carbon footprint. So if you can solve more than one problem at once, well, those get high priority. And we have to do two acts of good governance if you want to deal with something like climate or food, You have to, A, reduce our footprint on the planetary commons, but, B, you have to help the people doing it into a new line of work and into something more sustainable. That calls for two acts of good governance, not just protecting the commons but being fair. So we've got to do both. We can, but we have to work at it, and we have to find cooperative solutions or there will be no hope. What we should be talking about the numbers is how many tens of billions of dollars are each of the principal players going to pay to help us invent our way out of the problem and help the developing countries leapfrog over the polluting Victorian Industrial Revolution. We need deployment of clean technology. We need sensible rules for energy efficiency. We need a polluter pays, market-based thing. Every single one of those, efficiency, invention, and market-based and adaptation is a necessary condition. None by itself is sufficient. So let's conclude then. Adaptation planning, performance standards for buildings, public-private partnerships, price on carbon. And remember, just as I said, when you have to deal with the agricultural workers, you also have to deal with the coal miners. We cannot just say, no, you can't do this, goodbye, too bad. We have to work to help them transition to sustainable work. The bottom line This is not just about us. This is our legacy to our children, grandchildren, and all the other living things on this earth. Remember the plants and animals and our children had very little to do with creating this problem. We created it. We have to teach them to solve the problem well. They have to join with us to do it. And we have to ask them, what do they want? A legacy of wealth and infrastructure or a legacy of biotic impoverishment, reduced diversity in culture and nature just to be richer, I'll bet from what the students I've met, they're much less interested in being mega wealthy than they are in having a planet that works. Thank you very much.
2: Our deep appreciation, Dr. Schneider for sharing with us the urgency of the climate change crisis and the steps we need to take to avoid the final tipping point. Mr. Jens
1: Holm of Sweden, former member of the European Parliament, is another climate change expert. He has sent us his greeting and a message via video. Let's hear from him now.
5: My name is Jens Holm. I was a member of the European Parliament between 2006 and 2009. I'd like to uh, greet uh, all the participants of this uh, very important uh, climate uh, conference. Here in Sweden and in Europe we are uh, getting prepared for uh, the big climate summit in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. So it's very uh, handy that you organize a conference about climate change. So you in the U.S. also can get uh, prepared for uh, action for the climate. Because we all know that uh, the situation is very, very crucial. It's not only a matter of uh, putting pressure on the politicians. It's also a matter on what uh, you and I can do. And uh, I think there is a lot we can do. We all know about uh, driving less car. Uh, stop flying with the airplanes, taking the train uh, instead, uh, and so on. But uh, I think also we can change the climate by stop eating meat. The meat production is actually responsible for more than all the uh, emissions together from the world's entire transport sector. That means that meat production uh, emits more gases than uh, cars, than the trucks, than the airplanes and the boats together. So by stopping eating meat, you can save the planet and you can save the climate. So please, become a part of the solution. Stop eating meat. My vision is that uh, by 2012, uh, all countries in the world have adopted uh, ambitious targets for cutting the emissions of uh, climate gases and that all of us were not any longer a part of the problem, we are part of the solution.
2: Thank you, Mr. Gdansholm. The effects of climate change are certainly being felt in the United States. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina smashed through New Orleans, leaving over 80% of the city flooded. Last year, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger proclaimed a statewide drought in California, and temperatures are still on the rise. According to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, the combined global land and ocean surface temperature in September was the second warmest on record.
1: Climate change is having devastating effects on other nations. Our next address is from Mrs. Maneka Gandhi, the former Minister of Environment and Forest for India. She has been a member of the Indian Parliament continuously since 1989. Mrs. Gandhi has received many awards for her environmental work, including the prestigious ASG Jayakar Award for creating awareness about climate change, animal welfare, and deforestation. Please listen to Mrs. Maneka Gandhi.
6: I would like to say my namaskar to Supreme Master Ching Hai and to all of you in the audience. I wish I could have been with you today. But unfortunately, I have Parliament. For many years now, we have been experiencing the problems of climate change. In my own constituency, there was a terrible drought this year. And just when the government had come to grips with it, it turned into an unseasonal flood. The farmers lost everything. The lentils I eat, regarded as a staple in India, are now so expensive that they have become a luxury that we have no rain, no water, increasing heat, drying rivers and dying people. Do you feel powerless as an individual to stop the world from dying? Let me explain how you and I can turn this around immediately. Methane and carbon dioxide are greenhouse gases, which means that their presence in the air traps heat and affects the Earth's temperature and climate, making the planet warmer. As it warms, the climate changes and the glaciers melt. When the glaciers melt, the rivers first flood, and then dry up. Let's take methane. It's an easy problem to deal with. It's produced from four sources. Livestock, livestock manure, rice farming, coal mine, and landfills. The time has come for both the developed and developing world to recognize that reducing methane is the quickest way to stop global warming while we wrestle with the problems of technology changes for reducing carbon dioxide. What makes methane so lethal? It may be less than carbon dioxide, but it is 23 times more efficient in trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And methane has a large effect for a brief period. In fact, it lasts in the air for a net lifetime of about 8.4 years, whereas carbon dioxide has a small effect for a long period. What does that mean? It means that if we stop generating methane today, we will see the effect almost immediately. In developed countries, the eating of meat has risen from 65 kilos to 100 kilos per year. 100 kilos means over 300 animals are killed by one person every year. Meat eating, why is it a problem? Because it increases both carbon dioxide and methane. Producing one steak in your supermarket takes roughly 60,000 calories of energy. Keeping cattle or pigs, growing food for them, feeding them, transporting them, killing them, cleaning and packaging the meat, sending it by air-conditioned vehicles to the supermarkets, which keep it in freezers, then you buy it, then it's fridges at home, and then you cook it because you can't eat it raw. This is all carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, we increase because forests are cut by the minute in places like Brazil, China, Indonesia, India, so that we can graze the cattle, the pigs, the hens, the goats, the sheep. These forests absorb carbon dioxide. So when we cut down the forest, we cut down the carbon sinks and we exchange them for meat. Now come to methane and its relationship to meat. Livestock produce 23% of all methane because of the fermentation in their intestines which produces gas in these animals. It produces it in their manure, in the waste water that they produce. A single dairy cow produces f- between 550 to 700 litres of methane a day. The world's top destroyer of the atmosphere is not the car, nor the factory. It is the meat-eating human being. There is a 400-page United Nations report which has identified the world's rapidly growing herds of cattle as the greatest threat to the climate, forests, wildlife and the continuation of the earth. Your ham sandwich is killing me. Your ham sandwich is killing the earth. Livestock produce more than 100 other polluting gases including two-thirds of the world's emissions of ammonia. Ammonia creates acid rain. Acid rain destroys forests. And overgrazing has turned pastures and mountain ranges, like my Aravani range, which used to protect Delhi and no longer does, because it's become a desert. Cows soak up vast amounts of water. It takes a staggering 990 litres of water to produce 1 litre of milk wastes from feedlots and fertilizers used to grow their feed, all washes down to the sea. It kills the coral reefs and it creates dead zones. There are over 200 dead zones in the ocean now, thousands of kilometers wide, including near India, including off Washington, which have no life. Diet change would make far more of a difference than trading in, for instance, your car. Many people think that if they trade in a standard Car for a more efficient hybrid car, this will save the earth. But it doesn't. It reduces annual greenhouse emissions by just one ton a year. And then you create one and a half tons by eating meat. All 1.5 billion cows in the world, you created them. They don't want to be killed, but you kill them to eat. In the process, you you kill not just them, you kill the planet. Now, what can we do? The cost of reducing carbon dioxide are much larger because it needs technology. The cost of reducing methane is zero. Simply stop eating meat. You can remove methane in one day starting with today's dinner. If you stop eating meat today, you will stop my Ganges glacier from melting. And 23% of my people will survive because the magnificent and holy Ganges will stop turning into a stream. And how will this impact you? My people will not become refugees and storm your gates to enter your country. So not only will you save the world yourself, stopping eating will also stop so much poverty on the planet. It brings you better health. It eliminates most cancers. It frees up masses of land for vegetables and grains and really good eating. It allows water for the poor. For instance, do you know that one slaughterhouse in my city uses 16 million litres a day and one family gets one litre? Take the power into your own hands. You can become an earth saver. You don't need machines. You don't need governments. You don't even need treaties like the Copenhagen Treaty. You can stop it today by yourself. Maybe this is the ultimate lesson that nature is trying to teach us. Good gets good. Don't kill and don't be killed. Thank you.
1: Thank you Mrs. Gandhi. Your desire to protect all life is an inspiration to all. We wish you much success in your noble Political service.
2: And now for a dramatic change of pace. According to Time magazine, Albert Einstein was the quintessential genius of the 20th century. Often, when Einstein was faced with a problem, he would pick up his violin and play until a solution entered his consciousness. Music was the source of his inspiration.
1: Our next performer is definitely a source of inspiration. Ms. Ji Young Kim graduated from Young University and has performed extensively in Korea. She plays the electric violin, often creating upbeat versions of classical compositions. This afternoon, she will share her lively rendition of Pachelbel's Canon in D Major. Please give a warm welcome to Miss Jenny Young.
2: Thank you very much, Ms. ji Yun Kim, for uplifting our spirits and sharing your heartfelt enthusiasm for music.
1: Yes, that was truly inspiring. Now let's return to our topic of climate change. Our next speaker, Dr. Noah Moore, is a graduate from both Yale and Pennsylvania State Universities. He is currently an adjunct professor of physics at New York University. Dr. Moore will explain the importance of short-lived greenhouse gases. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Norm Moore.
7: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Global warming is one of the biggest environmental threats ever faced by humanity, for the sheer scale of the problem. The emissions we emit today are ones that will continue warming the Earth for centuries to come. And with the threats, the risks, that temperature increases pose, the rising sea levels, the melting glaciers, the increase in extreme weather phenomena like droughts and hurricanes, people are coming to the point where they realize inaction is impossible. And the question is, what can we best do about it? Traditionally, the focus has been on sources of carbon dioxide, burning gasoline in our gas tanks, burning fossil fuels in our power plants. And of course, very important to address those sources. But it turns out when you look at the data, especially when you focus on the near term, arguably the best place to focus our efforts is on animal agriculture. This is really surprising. People don't usually think of the things that they sit down to eat at dinner could be affecting the climate of the entire planet. So it's really interesting information and really powerful information because it means we can start doing something about it and get a lot of bang for our buck. The UN has said that the livestock sector emerges as one of the top two or three most significant contributors to the most serious environmental problems at every scale from local to global. That means every major environmental problem has animal agriculture at the top of the list of causes. I mean, it's amazing to think that one industry, especially this industry, raising animals for food could be so powerful. But when you realize that it is, it really makes sense that this is also having such a big effect on climate change and that it is a rich source of opportunity to do something about it. First, let's see why this is such a big influence. The UN has estimated that 18% of our emissions causing global warming today are due to animal agriculture. For comparison, as um, Mr. Holm pointed out, all the cars and trucks and SUVs and planes and trains and other modes of transportation in the world together amount to about 12%. So animal agriculture alone is a far bigger chunk of the problem than all those sources Important sources as they are, are put together. The University of Chicago did a study which they measured for the average American if the average American switched their diet to a vegetarian diet, how much global warming would that save? And they found it was about 40% more than if they switched their car in for a hybrid Toyota Prius, which is a big focus of environmentalist efforts to improve our emissions definitely it's a big positive step to switch your car for a Prius, but it's really telling that we can make an even bigger difference by reducing our consumption of animal products. These are big numbers as they are. And we'll talk about why they're such big numbers and uh, then talk about why these numbers are truly underestimates of the scope of the problem. And it's hard to imagine when you look at one cow in a field. How could this cow be changing the climate for the entire world? If you look at a chicken hatching from its egg just doesn't seem like the chicken could be doing much for the entire world. But when you look at the vast numbers of animals involved, it's really staggering. You start to realize the scope of the problem. All right, when you look at the vast numbers involved, um, it really becomes quite obvious the scope of what we're talking about. Um, In the US alone... In 2008, just to feed Americans, 80 billion animals were killed. The numbers are just hard to get your head around. If you look at the entire animal biomass of the Earth, all the animals in the world, you'll find one-fifth of those are animals we're raising for food. One in every five. So the numbers are just staggering. If you look at the surface of the Earth, 30% of the ice-free land surface of the Earth is being used to raise animals for food for pasture land, or to grow feed for those animals. So this is a huge part of our economy, a huge part of our human efforts, and so it makes sense that it would be a huge part of our environmental problems. And if you think about it in your own life, how much money you spend on food, how big a part of your life is food, you know, you go outside and see restaurants and supermarkets and so on, the food we eat is a big part of what humans do. And it only makes sense that it's a huge part of the problem. As bad as it is today, as bad as the emissions are from this sector, think about what will happen if we don't do anything. Meat consumption has increased five times in the past 50 years, and it's on schedule to double again in the next decade or two. So as bad as things are now, they're only getting worse if we do nothing, and these kind of increases threaten to swamp improvements we make in emissions in other areas, so we absolutely cannot neglect this important area. Why do these animals and their production emit so much global warming gases? Well, people often look at carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is a big part of the problem. And animal agriculture contributes a great deal to carbon dioxide. To produce one calorie of animal protein takes 11 times as much energy input as one calorie of plant protein production takes. So it's very energy intensive. It takes lots of power. Maneka Gandhi talked about all the different things you have to do to get animals to your plate from growing far more plants than you would need if you ate them directly in order to feed to the animals, grow the animals, slaughter them at different locations, transport them to your stores, and then finally to your homes, refrigerate them. All that, very energy intensive. Um, And among all the species that we eat, Fish is probably the worst in this regard, very energy-intensive, on average. Deforestation is also a big source of these emissions. As we burn forests in order to produce pasture land and farm land to grow feed for animals, we're emitting all the carbon these trees have taken out of the atmosphere during their entire lifetimes, emitting them all at once. That's a huge source of our carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. And if you look at formerly forested Amazon rainforest, now converted into land used for growing animals for food, it amounts to 90% of all uh, the Amazon rainforest that's been deforested since 1970. 90%. So when you see all this deforestation, we need to think it's related to what we sit down and eat at mealtime. The deforestation also emits black carbon which is very efficient at absorbing light. And that adds an extra danger as this very absorbing material can float through the atmosphere into places like Antarctica, which are very bright and reflect sunlight. Reflecting sunlight is good because it keeps the Earth cooler, but as black carbon floats down to Antarctica, absorbing more sunlight, it presents a danger of increasing melting there. And melting of Antarctic ice has dramatic potential effects on global sea levels and coastal flooding. So there's a lot of dangers just on the carbon dioxide side. But other gases also pose a big problem. And the other gases are often overlooked in all the focus on carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is produced by far in the greatest quantities of all the gases we emit. But it's not the most powerful at warming the Earth at all. Other gases uh, can be much more powerful at warming the Earth. Methane, for example, causes 25 times as much warming as carbon dioxide over 100 years. Other gases, like nitrous oxide, can be about 300 times, cause 300 times more warming over 100 years. Those are numbers that are often taken into account, and as a result, um, when you look back at historical warming, carbon dioxide is, is responsible for about half the problem, and other gases, mainly methane, is responsible for the other half. So it's important not to overlook these other gases. But when you look at near-term warming, the numbers are bigger than are usually calculated. If you look over 20 years, methane is not 25 times more powerful, it's 72 times more powerful. So all the numbers that are calculated by the UN, by the Chicago study, by lots of studies, which look at the standard of what happens over 100 years, are skewed when you look at the near-term effects. And in the near-term effects, sources of other gases like sources of methane, have an outsized effect. And the number one source of methane worldwide is animal agriculture. So that's one reason why animal agriculture has a bigger effect than even these large numbers suggest. Another reason why animal agriculture has a bigger cause than most numbers suggest is aerosols. Aerosols are the tiny particles that make up smog. Whenever we burn fossil fuels, they emit heat-trapping carbon dioxide. They also emit aerosols. Aerosols are bad for our health, but they also reflect sunlight and therefore cool the earth. If you look historically at the amount of warming caused by carbon dioxide and the amount of cooling caused by aerosols, it's hard to calculate the effect of aerosols because there's a lot of uncertainty. But roughly, they're on the same scale. So much of the warming we've been seeing has been caused by these other gases— by the sources of other gases rather than sources of carbon dioxide because those sources have been emitting carbon dioxide and uh, heat-reflecting aerosols. That doesn't mean we don't need to worry ourselves about burning fossil fuels because carbon dioxide lasts in the atmosphere for centuries. Our emissions are ones we're stuck with for hundreds of years while aerosols only last for a short time. And we're getting rid of them from the environment anyway because they're bad for our health. So it's not a reason not to do anything about power plants and vehicles, but it does mean that in the near term, sources of other gases of which animal agriculture is the biggest source have a truly outsized effect on the warming we're seeing and will be seeing in the near term. So when you look at methane, you realize that the biggest source is our meat production. produces about 100 million tons a year, most of it in the form of digestion, These animals can digest things that we can't eat, like grass, and they do it through a special process, through bacteria in their gut, that emit methane. So the huge numbers of animals we produce end up producing huge amounts of methane. The biggest culprit is dairy production. They produce more methane than any other source, but another source is the manure they produce, which tends to be kept in huge manure lagoons, acres and acres of cesspools, all emitting this methane. Um, And when it comes to manure, pig production is the biggest culprit. They all produce methane. Right now, the air we're breathing has more than double the methane it did before industrialization. So the effect has been really big, and this methane is very powerful at trapping heat. So when you look overall, this is a very powerful message because it means we can have a really big impact on the climate change problem, an impact that most people aren't aware they can have. It's very empowering. When you look at it, not only is the effect big, but if we try to address the problem through reductions in animal agriculture, we get benefits of quick turnaround. Even if we stopped selling cars that were inefficient and produced lots of carbon dioxide, it would still take years for the cars that are on the road to no longer be driven. And the turnaround time for power plants is much longer, while the turnaround time for farmed animals is really pretty short. Even the longest-lived farmed animals today generally live only up to two years. So changes we make today are quickly implemented. They also mean quick results. Carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for centuries. It's still very important to deal with carbon dioxide for that very reason, but methane is in the atmosphere for only about 12 years. So if we make reductions in methane sources, the biggest one being animal agriculture, we will quickly see changes in near-term effects. This is extremely important to remember the near term because we are approaching tipping points in the next few years which could cause irreversible changes. And anything we can do to slow the process of getting to that point is urgent. By addressing through animal agriculture, we can also increase sources of carbon sinks. Right now, 70% of the world's agricultural land is being used to raise animals for food. By having the opportunity to return some of that land to its natural state, we allow to grow the plants that were destroyed before that serve to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Targeting animal agriculture is also a lot cheaper than other sources because it is easy for anyone to choose one source of food versus another source of food every time they sit down to dinner, it's a lot harder for a person to say, no, I want to switch from burning fossil fuels to solar or wind power. That takes a, an investment and longer-term plan. One study found that it, you could reduce the economic burden of reaching our climate targets by 80% if we focused on animal agriculture rather than traditional sources. Finally, it's really empowering to people who see this problem around the world and get frustrated when political leaders don't seem to be doing anything and they feel helpless. People feel helpless. Knowing that what people eat every time they sit down to dinner makes a difference for the entire world means we can each make a difference. Every time we sit down to dinner simply by switching your hamburger to a veggie burger, you can make a difference for the future of the planet, for the health of the planet. It's a message which people can take with them that's positive and which they can implement in their own lives. So this is an unparalleled opportunity to make great progress in addressing global warming, curbing global warming, particularly in the near term, while reducing the economic burden of doing so, and at the same time, addressing all the other environmental problems that the UN said animal agriculture is also a top contributor to. It's just great news to know that what's good for you, for your health, is also good for the planet. If this is not our replacement for all the other important strategies that people talk about, but it is the one that may give us the biggest bang for our buck. Thanks.
2: Many thanks, Dr. Moore, for sharing your research on the sources and effects of increased atmospheric methane. There's new evidence that livestock raising may actually contribute much more to climate change than previously thought. Mm -hmm. The World Watch Institute has released a new study called Livestock and Climate Change, which states, and I quote, Our analysis shows that livestock and their byproducts actually account for at least 51% of annual worldwide greenhouse gas emissions, end quote. Yes, and I read that
1: too. And the livestock industry not only contributes to climate change, it is also a root cause in many of our infectious diseases.
2: Dr. Michael Greger is a medical doctor and the director of public health and animal agriculture for the Humane Society of the United States. He is a foremost authority on swine flu and many other types of diseases. Dr. Greger is the author of the book Bird Flu, a virus of our own hatching. He is also a vegan. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Michael Greger.
8: Thank you. Good afternoon. According to the director general of the World Health Organization, the three greatest threats facing humanity, number one, is the global food crisis, climate change is number two, and pandemic influenza is number three, all of which have to do with our food choices. The current pandemic has killed thousands of people, but in a world in which millions continue to die of diseases like AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria. Why is there so much concern about this so-called swine flu? Because apparently the last time a nearly entirely new flu virus jumped species and caused a pandemic, it went on to become the deadliest plague in human history. The influenza pandemic of 1918. Most flu strains tend to spare young, healthy adults. The 1918 virus killed people in the prime of life. In 1918, more than a quarter of all Americans fell ill. This is a chart of percent of population dying here in the States. In 1918, as many as 50 to 100 million people lost their lives. A similar virus today could kill many, many more. What started for millions around the globe as muscle aches and a fever ended days or Even hours later, homeless orphans, their parents gone, wandered the empty streets. One agonized official in the stricken East sent an urgent warning west, quote, hunt up your woodworkers and set them to making coffins, then take your street laborers and set them to digging graves. This is a clipping from the New York Times at the time, Victims of plague everywhere, great pyres of bodies consumed by the flames. That 1918 flu virus killed more people in 25 weeks than AIDS has killed in 25 years. No war, no plague, no famine has ever killed so many people in so short of time as the 1918 pandemic. Where did it come from? The conventional wisdom is that the 1918 pandemic was triggered when an H1N1 bird virus in its entirety, all eight gene segments, jumped into human beings. We then apparently pass it along to pigs, sickening millions of them as well. Now, after the pandemic, when our immune systems got used to the new virus, it turned into the regular seasonal flu. And in pigs, it turned to what we call classic or classical swine flu. Before 1918, we have no reports ever of any pigs coming down with the flu at all. So throughout the roaring 20s, people got the regular flu every year and pigs got the swine flu. Same thing with the 30s. And the same with the 40s. The important thing to notice, though, is that swine flu remained stable throughout, unchanging throughout the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s in North America, and stable throughout the 1980s. But then, by 1999, everything changed. A never before described triple species flu virus arose, the classic. Swine flu virus, after being stable for 80 years straight, picked up three gene segments from the circulating human flu virus and then two gene segments from a bird flu virus to create the first triple animal reassortment virus ever described. Our first hybrid, a human-pig viral mutant, was discovered on an industrial pig operation in Newton Grove, North Carolina in August 1998 Owned by a massive pork conglomerate by the name of Hogslat, the virus mutated further and then spread without months throughout the United States. Soon it spread into Canada and by 2003, the majority of animals tested in industrial pig operations in Mexico also showed evidence of exposure to our triple hybrid strain. We then exported it to Asia and apparently the favor has been returned. After Reshuffling with the classic swine flu, our made-in-the-USA triple reassortment virus picked up two gene segments from a Eurasian swine flu lineage to create the flu pandemic of 2009. The primary progenitor, the main ancestor of our current pandemic flu virus, as shown in orange here, is the triple hybrid mutant that emerged and spread throughout factory farms in the United States more than a decade ago, six out of the eight gene segments, three-quarters of our current pandemic virus straight from our triple hybrid. In this diagram, these data are from the most comprehensive genetic analysis of this virus to date. Now, influenza experts have been warning about this triple hybrid mutant for years, what they call an extremely promiscuous mammalian-adapted virus. You know, flu scientists used to only worry about Southeast Asia, But given the appearance of that triple hybrid mutant, now we need to look in our own backyard for where the next pandemic may appear. And six years later, it indeed did. After eight decades of stability, what happened in the 1990s that led to these unprecedented changes in swine flu? And the same question with bird flu. No human deaths from avian influenza for eight decades until... 1997, when H5N1 starting killing people in Hong Kong. And then H7N7, bird flu emerged in the Netherlands, which went on to infect 1,000 people and ended up being transmitted efficiently from person to person. Just two examples of new bird flu viruses infecting people. Now, in poultry, the number of outbreaks of highly pathogenic, highly disease-causing strains in the first few years of this century has already exceeded the total number of outbreaks recorded for the entire 20th century. As one leading flu scientist told Science, we've gone from a few snowflakes to an avalanche. What has been happening in recent years to trigger these kind of unprecedented changes in both swine and chicken flu viruses? Let's ask the world's leading expert, Dr. Robert Webster, as did the senior correspondent of NewsHour with Jim Lair. Was there something qualitatively different about this last decade? Made it possible for this disease to do something he's never done before, some kind of changing conditions that suddenly lit a match to the tinder? Webster replied. He says, farming practices have changed. He talks about growing up on a farm. He says, now we put millions of chickens into a chicken factory next door to a pig factory. And this virus has the opportunity to get into one of these chicken factories and make billions and billions of mutations continuously. And so what we've changed is the way we raise animals. Five years ago, the world's three leading authorities got together for a joint consultation – the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization the United Nations, and the World Organization for Animals' Health, the world's leading veterinary authority. And their job was to uncover the key underlying causes of all these new animal-to-human diseases. Number one on their list, in themes of risk factors, was this increasing demand for animal protein the world over. Animals were domesticated 10,000 years ago, but never before like this especially pigs and poultry. You know, chickens used to peck around the barnyard. But now, chickens raised for meat are typically warehoused in sheds containing tens of thousands of birds. Half of the egg-laying hens on our planet are now confined in what are called battery cages. These small, barren wire enclosures extending down long rows in windowless sheds can be up to a million birds on a single farm. About half the world's pig population is currently confined in these industrial confinement operations. These intensive systems represent the most profound alteration of the human-animal relationship in 10,000 years. Now, the industry is slowly waking up to the growing realization that viruses previously innocuous to natural host species have in all probability become more virulent by passes through these large commercial populations. This is from an international um, trade journal. This is not arguably how animals were meant to live. So, how does the poultry industry feel about the possibility of its own so called factory farms leading to a pandemic that could kill millions of people? Well, the executive editor of Poultry Magazine wrote an editorial on just that topic. The prospect of a virulent flu to which we have absolutely no resistance uh, is frightening. However, to me, the threat is much greater. To the poultry industry, I'm not as worried about the U.S. human population dying from bird flu as I am that there will be no chicken to eat, said the executive editor of Poultry Magazine. There are at least ten reasons why industrial pork production can present such a breeding ground for disease. The operation in Newton Grove, North Carolina, where the ancestor of the current pandemic virus was first detected was a breeding facility in which thousands of sows were confined in what are called gestation crates, also known as sow stalls. These are kind of veal crate-like barren metal cages about two feet wide. These highly intelligent social creatures basically being kept in a box week after week, month after month, for nearly their entire lives. They can develop crippling joint deformities, lameness. I mean, if we did this to a dog, you'd get thrown in jail. Not only can these pregnant pigs not turn around, they can really barely move at all. Now, the rise in stress hormone levels in these so-called crated sows is thought to be because of the interference with natural maternal behaviors like nest building, what they can't do in a cage. And this frustration of maternal behavior has been shown experimentally to result in impaired immunity. Now, the National Livestock and Meat Board defends intensive confinement in a pamphlet called Facts from the Meat Board. Confinement rearing has its precedents. Schools are an example of confinement-rearing of children, they say. Not that different from how they described veal crates as being similar to a baby's crib. The fact that the industry feels the need to mislead consumers by conjuring images of classrooms and baby cribs speaks to how far out of step animal agriculture has gone from just, you know, mainstream basic decency towards animals. And, interestingly, they know it. As Professor Emeritus of Animal Science wrote in one of his college textbooks, one of the best things modern animal agriculture has going for it is that most people haven't a clue how animals are raised. For modern animal agriculture, the less the consumer knows, the better. What can we do to prevent this kind of thing in the future, which is why we're all here today? The United Nations has urged all governments, local authorities, international agencies, need to take a greatly increased role in combating the role of factory farming, um, which combined with these live bird markets that combine, in their words, ideal conditions for the flu virus to spread and mutate into a more dangerous form. These factory farms can be thought of as the original incubators for dangerous strains of the flu. More than five years ago, the American Public Health Association, the largest and oldest association of public health professionals in the world, called for a moratorium on factory farming. No more factory farms. In 2007, the journal of the APHA published an editorial that went beyond just calling for de-intensification of the industry, of the pork and poultry industries, the editorial questioned the prudence of raising so many animals for slaughter in the first place. It is curious that changing the way humans treat animals, most basically ceasing to eat them, or at the very least radically limiting the quantity of them that is eaten, is largely off the radar as a significant preventive measure. But such a change if sufficiently adopted or enforced, could still reduce the chances of the much-feared influenza pandemic, it would even more likely prevent unknown future diseases that, in the absence of the change, may result from farming animals intensively and killing animals for food. Yet humanity, it goes on to say, doesn't even apparently consider this option. We don't tend to shore up the levees until after the disaster strikes. The editorial concludes, those who consume animals not only harm those animals and endanger themselves, but they also threaten the well-being of future generations. It is time for humans to remove their heads from the sand, they say, and recognize the risk to themselves that can arise from the maltreatment of other species. How we treat animals can have global public health implications. Let me end with a quote from the World Health Organization. The bottom line is that people have to think about how they treat their animals. Basically, the whole relationship between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom is coming under stress. In this age of emerging diseases, we now have billions of curly-tailed and feathered test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within billions more spins at pandemic roulette. But along with human culpability comes hope If changes in human behavior can cause new plagues, well, then changes in human behavior may prevent them in the future. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Michael Griguer. The information you have given us is truly thought-provoking.
2: I think it's time for some inspiration. The piano is one of the musical instruments originally designed to reproduce higher universal frequencies. Let's listen to some piano music now that will lift our spirits.
1: Our next performer was born in Saigon, Vietnam. Ms. Win Phong showed musical talent very early. When she was only seven, she won a scholarship to study at the prestigious Saigon Conservatory. She has won seven gold medals at piano and organ contests and recently became the first Vietnamese student to receive a scholarship to attend Berklee College of Music in Boston. She will be playing My Favorite Things. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Nguyen Phong.
2: For sharing your uplifting music with us. Yes,
1: yes, it was truly uplifting. Well, next we will hear from Dr. T. Colin Campbell, a professor of nutritional biochemistry at Cornell University and author of the best selling book, The China Study. Let's hear from him now.
9: My name is T. Colin Campbell. I'm a uh, longtime professor at Cornell University, presently a professor emeritus of nutritional biochemistry. Um, I have been working in the field as a researcher, as a lecturer, as a teacher uh, for many, many years, more than 50 years uh, in the field of food and health. Uh, we learned when we gathered all the information from the laboratory on the one hand, from the human studies on the other, that this information rather substantially pointed to the idea that consuming uh, anything other than whole plant-based foods could create health problems. We learn that nutrition is a major factor in keeping us healthy. And by nutrition, I mean consuming whole plant-based foods and eliminating as much as possible animal-based foods, dairy, eggs, and meat. And one of the outcomes of this idea is not only do we restore health, but now we're learning that this can have a major effect on the environment. I know there's a conference coming up in Washington, D.C. on a question concerning global warming and and, uh, livestock production and animal food consumption, Uh, and I I would extend my best wishes for that conference. I think it's an important conference, a very important conference, and I'm uh, delighted to uh, pass along a message that uh, what is being done here uh, is about as important a topic as anything that I can consider. I, I, I extend my best wishes to the conference.
2: Thank you, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, for your insight into the relationship of diet and health. So, if we unite for a kinder, animal-free
1: lifestyle, it will be better for our health and for our planet. I wonder how aware today's children are of the benefits from
2: switching to a plant-based diet. Well, let's hear what Winter Grace Williams, the daughter of famous American talk show host montel williams has to say
3: some of us don't eat right fast food junk food sometimes even our school lunches have too much fat and cholesterol i'm winter grace williams you know my dad montel and i'd like your help in bringing healthy foods into schools a lot of us hate to see this others hate to see this and nobody wants to see this the answer is this veggie chili veggie burgers healthy food Sign our petition today at HealthySchoolLunches.org.
1: Now that was to the point. To elaborate on this topic, we bring to you our next speaker, Dr. Ruby Lathan. Dr. Lathan currently serves as the Nutrition Policy Manager for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Also, she has been inducted into the Inc. Hall of Fame as one of the outstanding women in science, technology, and engineering. A vegan herself, Dr. Lathan is the driving force behind proposed legislation for the Healthy School Lunch Program. Please welcome Dr. Ruby Lathan.
10: Well, good afternoon. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, this afternoon. And I just want to first thank the organizers of of this conference as well as the renowned leaders and speakers who are participating here. And we're going to take a little bit of a shift and talk about the role of diet and climate change and focus a little bit on children and child health. And they've asked me to talk a little bit about the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and give you a little insight on what we do. We are a nonprofit organization based here in Washington, D.C., made up of tens of thousands of physicians, dietitians, and healthcare professionals, as well as lay people who promote Um, health, through preventative medicine, through good nutrition and ethical standards of research. So this is definitely an area that fits within our scope. So the role of diet and climate change is very critical. And we know based on the many reports that we've heard here today, including one entitled Climate Change, Sustainable Diet, Health, the Connection and the Solution, that we know that our food choices, which are a contributory factor to many major chronic diseases, are also dramatically impacting our climate. So we know that children's health reflects the society in which they live, and we're going to focus on that for a moment. Um, Research shows that the risk of chronic disease increases with the increase in meat and dairy consumption. And this graph shows the increase in meat consumption per capita between 1909 and 2005. And we can see that this increase was about about 50 pounds. It was 148 pounds per person in meat consumption. And in 2005, it rose to 202 pounds per person for meat consumption. And for cheese consumption, the difference is even more striking. We went from about 3.8 pounds of cheese consumption in 1909 to about 31 pounds in 2005. So it makes you wonder, where is all that extra cheese going? And somebody else is having mine, so I'm not having any. So, So when we look at this, we're wondering what impact does this have on our health in general when we see these kinds of increases. Consequently, the increase in child health and the prevalence of overweight has also increased. If we look at this graph, what it shows is in 1963, the prevalence of overweight among children and adolescents was about 4 to 5 percent. And it has steadily increased until 2002, where the prevalence of overweight among children was at 16%. And if we continue to plot this data, it rises in 2006 to 17% and on and on. And when we get the current data, I'm sure it's even more than that. So we can see that as we're increasing these things, such as meat and cheese consumption, our weight is going along with that. And as we know that when we have a higher weight, that many chronic diseases are related to that. And so we, we wonder if we have this, this uh increase in weight of children, what impacts them the most? And one of those things is the school lunch program. When we have about 100,000 schools participate in the national school lunch program and that's feeding over 30 million children each school day. Initially, this, this program was designed so that the most disadvantaged children would have adequate nourishment for learning and other things that they needed to do. All too often, we have high-fat, high-cholesterol-laden foods that show up as staples in the lunch line. We often see pepperoni pizza, macaroni and cheese, and chicken nuggets as the traditional staple that you can go in almost any public school in America, and it's on the menu. And so we know that some of the risks associated with this are diabetes, hypertension, cancer, and heart disease as well. And so I want to take a moment to focus on diabetes because that's one of the the major diseases that shows up when you have chronic overweight and obesity in our society. And if we look at obesity, um, diabetes over the last decade, the last 10 to 12 years, the uh, data is astonishing. So in 1994, um, this shows the prevalence of diabetes. So we had the darker blue colors show um, the prevalence of diabetes in that state if it's above about four or five percent. So if we're looking at the dark blue color, in 94, and 95, it increases. In 96, we're getting a little bit more. 97, again, showing the increase in diabetes in each state. 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, three, four, And in 2005, we had to change the scale to add another color because the amount of diabetes outgrew the current scale of about 5%. So we went from about 4% per state to at least 8% of the population or more having diabetes. And so we're seeing as the shift in our dietary patterns have changed, so is our weight and so is our health. And consequently, so is our environment. And so when we make these links, then we can talk about what we can do about that. So as it's wreaking havoc on our on our diet, on our health, and our planet, you know, it's also just having a devastating effect as cited, and we've often heard about, as cited here today in the United Nations report, um, livestock's long shadow, that an estimated 18% of greenhouse gas emissions were related to livestock and its production. However, the 2009 report, livestock... And climate change by researchers at the World Watch Institute estimated that that number was a bit higher, producing about 32.6 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. So that's about 51% of greenhouse gas emissions, which is astonishing. This is from the report by Food Watch study that was commissioned in 2008. And what this shows is... In comparison to um, a meat diet versus a non-meat diet, the amount of greenhouse gases for a car driven. For example, a meat-based diet would be equivalent to driving a car over 4,700 kilometers or 3,000 miles over a one-year period. But if you switch to a vegetarian diet, which is the second one there, it reduces that by half. And if you then switch to a vegan diet, it only takes about one-seventh, produces less than one-seventh of the greenhouse gas emissions as a meat-based diet. So that's quite astonishing. So we wonder, what can we do about that? One of the things is that uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has done is implemented kind of an innovative approach to tackling this, starting with our children, and that's our Healthy School Lunch Program. And in that program, what we do is help schools introduce vegan options into their lunch line. We show them how to do that in a sustainable way and and a way that is friendly to the children and they accept it and usually prefer it over some of the other options that they're given. As a matter of fact, we did a study in Broward County, Florida, where we introduced these options um, over several weeks in the school lunch program. And so what we had was a vegan option right next to your regular meat-based option. The vegan option in this graph is represented in red and the meat-based option is in blue, and the children had open opportunity to choose whichever they want. Now, we will say we promoted the vegan option so they knew they would be there and that they would be available, but even after this promotion period, these items stayed on the menu. So we can see that The the vegan options of veggie burgers, veggie chili, black beans and rice sold almost three times as much as the meat options. So the vegan options were very well accepted by children, which is contrary to a lot of what we hear sometimes by school officials or parents saying kids won't choose healthy food if you give it to them. And we've seen the opposite, that when it's presented to them and they're included in the process, this is what they want. Not only are our school children accepting it, but parents are as well. We did a survey of over 1,000 adults and asked them about, do they think that vegetarian or vegan options should be made available in the school lunch program? And over 80% agreed that this should be an option. So we have a lot of support and momentum for this. A second approach that we're taking is on a federal level with uh, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. And what we're doing there is we're lobbying Congress to make it more affordable, accessible, and easy for schools to include these healthy, high-fiber, low-fat foods in the school lunch program. So right now we, we are meeting with our representatives from all over the country and, and getting a lot of support. And things are looking very positive in pushing our bill forward that, that this will be very accessible for schools. Secondly, we're looking at the commodity structure. And what that means is almost all schools who participate in the school lunch program get their foods, um, lower cost foods through commodities from the USDA. So what we want to see in that, instead of um, spending a large amount of money, which they currently do on meat and cheese products, we would rather that the commodity structure favor low-fat, high-fiber, healthy, nutritious, plant-based foods so that the schools can then in turn order those foods. And so that's another initiative that we're pushing forward in Congress as we're uh, lobbying for that change. So we believe that change is possible. We have over 100,000 children, students, parents, and supporters who have signed on at HealthySchoolLunches.org and other places to sign our petition to Congress saying, this is what we want. This is what we want to see in our school lunches. We want to see healthy kids. We know healthy food relates in better behavior, better academic performance, better physical health. And so we're building a momentum. And when we presented this petition to Congress, it has made an impact. So we're continuing to gather those signatures at a grassroots level, trying to work this from more than one angle, getting people involved, schools involved, and also lobbying our government. So schools have also picked this up and and gone on their own with a lot of what they've done. For example, we have school districts that are implementing Meatless Mondays um, to cut costs and, in turn, increase child health. We have uh, California, New York, Hawaii, and Florida have all implemented resolutions encouraging vegetarian meals and non-dairy beverages in place of cow's milk to be served in schools. Um, the American Medical Association as well as the American Public Health Association have issued resolutions recommending that vegetarian meals and non-dairy beverages be served in the school lunch program. So people are listening. We also had a recent report from the Institute of Medicine which influences the School Nutrition Association and the USDA in terms of what they serve that came out about three weeks ago that said there needed to be significant increases in Fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains in the school lunch program. So we're finally seeing people catch on. So as we're collating this information, there's really no way to deny that these changes need to be made and they need to start with our children. Because when children adopt healthy uh, practices, then they become healthy adults and continue those same practices into adulthood. And, And we think this is particularly important for our country as we're talking about health care, because if we can stop the problem before it starts, um, we'll make quite a few strides. And I'd like to briefly introduce 11-year-old Nina, who is part of the reason we're here today, addressing methods of preserving the planet that we're going to leave behind for our children. So I'm going to ask Nina to come on up, and I'm going to ask her a few questions. Now, she's quite a little activist herself and a vegetarian and she's been so kind to come up and answer a few questions about how she feels about what we're doing here and particularly um, healthy school lunches so um, Nina what grade are you in
11: um I'm in sixth grade
10: great great and and why are healthy school lunches important to you
11: Um, Well, they're important to me because um, if we have healthy lunches, then a lot of people will be healthier.
10: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like common sense, right? (laughs) So what foods would you like to see served at your school?
11: Um, Well, I think a lot of fruits and vegetables would be really good. Um, Instead of having, like, fruit... Cups, which a lot of people um, have at their schools, they could have fresh fruit.
10: That's that's wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and why do you prefer to eat fruits and vegetables rather than animals?
11: Um, well, I've loved animals all my life, um, and I think it would be really hard um, if I had to eat one. <laughs>
10: Thank you. And um, my final question is, why do you think it is important to stop eating meat?
11: Um, I think it's important to stop eating meat because if more people stopped, then um, it would be really good for the environment. Absolutely.
10: Thank you, Nina. And I'd like to just close um, with a statement that President Obama made at his climate change speech To the UN in September. And he says, The good news is that after too many years of inaction and denial, there is finally widespread recognition of the urgency of the challenge before us. And so I would like to say, let's continue our tireless work to create a sustainable future for our children. Thank you.
1: First, we want to thank Nina for being so compassionate toward our animal friends. And Dr. Lathan. may all schools and communities worldwide follow your noble example to feed our children healthy vegan food.
2: Our final speaker is Dr. Peter Carter from British Columbia, Canada. Dr. Carter has been a family physician for 30 years. He is also the founding director of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment and a climate policy advisor for Canadians for Climate Action. He is also a vegan. Please welcome Dr. Peter Carter.
12: When I was a boy growing up in England, um, uh, I just remember watching um, uh, the speakers uh, that when I was getting behind in my, in my jobs, my father used to say, Peter, come on, you better leap to it. So, so maybe this is a message that uh, the whole world is being uh, given here um, uh, by this wonderful conference. First of all, I would like to thank you all, um, uh, the room, the huge ballroom is, is packed, I want to thank you all for coming out here, okay, from the bottom of my heart, and the reason is this. We hear increasingly that um, global climate change is the greatest threat to the survival of civilization and indeed humanity, but that's not quite right. The greatest threat is the denial, okay? The denial is huge. There are powerful forces behind it, still confusing and misleading people so you people coming out and showing that you are breaking through the denial yourself and you're facing the reality of what we all face in our children is the best news there is and the best hope there is so you can see what i'm interested in and what i want to share with you today which is the zero carbon emergency response the uh, golden era, which, in fact, we have no choice but to leap to it. The golden era is the zero carbon era. That's what the scientists are telling us. There has three essentials that we have to achieve, and we can achieve these three altogether. First is what most people call renewable, but but it's perpetual, you see, perpetual non-polluting zero carbon energy. We live on an energy planet, all right. So this idea that we have to carry on poisoning our planet and ourselves with fossil fuels is just absolute nonsense, and we've known it for decades. Second, sufficient, zero-carbon, non-polluting food for all. And as you've already heard, this is eminently achievable as long as we switch the way we produce our food and uh, we are more wise um, uh, in uh, the food that we choose to eat. Third is that we have to create world peace. So we have a lot of converting to do. We have to convert our energy completely. We have to convert our food production and diet completely. And we have to convert the militarization of the world completely. We can do it. How do we get there? Because we have to leap at it, and we have to leap at it altogether. So in actual fact, um, uh, we are very privileged to live at this time, because we get to uh, realize and create, in actual fact, a, a sort of eternal dream of humanity that you can find throughout all civilizations and all cultures, which is this yearning for a golden age. Okay, um, It's been a dream before, but now we can actually make this happen. We, As Ban Ki-moon said, we have all the resources um, to deal with and get over climate change. The only thing we lack, as he said, is time. We are in an emergency. So the idea of deep peace has been around for a long time, and all the religions and all the cultures also have this idea of deep peace. So I want to stress this. We're not going to get to this golden era. We're not going to uh, make this conversion um, of our agriculture and our fossil fuel energy, without abandoning this hostility which we have inherited generation after generation after generation. Okay, we're spending a trillion dollars on armaments still. All right, um, I remember working against this in the peace movement, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I believe yes, we did save the planet from destruction by a nuclear holocaust. But we face another one now, and this time we have to. Change our world to save our earth. There's something missing, obviously. You know, we all know how bad this is. So there's some missing ingredient um, uh, in how we deal with this at our political levels and everything. Well, the first is the denial again. We've got to face the situation. You know, we've got to open our hearts, face the fear, okay, and say to ourselves, okay, we're not going to let this happen. You know, yeah, it's really terrible. It's really scary. So that's the first thing. Well, we obviously we have to have a compassionate culture. We have to create a compassionate culture as the Dalai Lama and all the spiritual leaders, in, indeed, um, uh, Supreme Master King Hai says is the essential. I often think that the greatest invention of humanity is our ethics of compassion. This was actually invented right by ancient cultures. It's the most, most essential invention that we, that we ever came up with. We have to get over this hostile competitiveness, which is our perpetual war economy. We have to convert this, you know. Uh, Nicholas Stern and the Stern Commission explained that global climate change is the greatest market failure ever because we think it's fine, um, to make war all the time and prepare for war and, and not worry about all the damage which is being done to the planet. By the way, so Nicholas Stern, um, I was very glad because he's sort of one of, my, one of my climate heroes. I thought the Stern Commission report was great. So I think last month he made a statement to the media that he said, I, you know, I think people are going to have to become vegetarian to save the earth. You know, well, that was very good. Well, guess what he did last week? He made another statement, I'm vegetarian. Okay, so, hey. <laughs> good for you, Sir Nicholas. This conference reminds me of a a conference in Columbia University and a a special edition by Scientific American back in 2005 called Crossroads for Planet Earth. Of course, it's humanity which is at the great crossroads. And uh, the theme of the conference was the the human race is at a unique turning point. And will we choose to create the best of all possible worlds? This is still an open question. All you people here I know have made the choice. We have everything we need to create this best of all possible futures. But if we don't, if we don't get engaged, if we don't address it, if we don't look at it, by default, we're leaving the worst possible world for our children and all future generations. And nobody wants to do that. So a few uh, reports here. 15th of September 2009, I was immensely proud of my medical profession Um, when they issued a special open letter in the Lancet in the British Medical Journal, uh, September 2009, addressing the issue head on, saying that failure to agree to a United Nations climate deal will bring a global health catastrophe. And that was signed by the presidents of 18 of the world's professional medical organizations. That really did my heart good, of course, to, uh, to get that news. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Carter, for your sensitivity, your broad perspective, and for encouraging all of us to take immediate action.
9: Also, well, a nice review of the scientific um, results of studies, and I thought that was very good. I think we have to um, save the habitat. And get to a sustainable lifestyle, and, right. and I think all human beings have a, a, a duty to fellow human beings and to our habitat and and to other species. And I think, and the idea of not being cruel and exploitative. I mean, I share those kind of values.
6: We've studied the uh,
4: pyramid of how each time you go up a ladder from the biomass that is produced by our autotrophs to the next level, all the way to the top, we lose energy. And so the eating of animals is very bad. We should go to more of a vegetarian diet. Our culture has been raised on these animals, but it has gotten our ecosystem out of water.
5: I just am reminded how important it is to be compassionate and I understand about the importance of being a vegetarian or vegan, but it's encouraged me to share it with other people. Just hearing all of these, these incredible speakers today has just really opened my eyes. We need to do something now, and that's what's so wonderful about being vegan, is it can be a really almost an immediate change.
12: I have attended many national and international conventions, workshops on topics ranging from conflict and peace to environment, ecology, indigenous peoples, human rights, and so on, but I thought this was a unique experience for me.
6: and I myself learned a lot from this.
4: I was getting stuff that was educating me and really hitting me hard, provoking my mind. I'm 57 years old, and a few health issues... And what I've been hearing is this could save my life. I'm calling it a spiritual awakening for the world because I do want the universe to go on as it has been going on. It can't go on like it is right now because everything is suffering. Now, the climate affects everything. Today is a reawakening because the tofu I enjoyed today, I thought it was steak. It was so delicious. I have to learn the menu. It's a whole new language now. This is a whole new culture here, it's not about race, it's a whole new spirituality. Um, and I'm just so privileged that God has put me in an environment that He has opened up my eyes to a wider horizon. And I'm just grateful.
0: I've turned into a vegetarian myself. Oh, have you? A vegan oh. It's all over with because I know that it contributes a lot to global warming, the methane gas from the cows and all the animals.
13: Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Everybody has to get on board. It's just not me and you and five right. thousand other people. It's got to be millions of people mm. have to join this cause.
6: Exactly.
4: I think that, um, that it's simple enough to go vegetarian. It it takes a little work the first couple of months, and then you get used to it.
7: That there's definitely a chance that people will take a lot away from this conference and i, I know i personally um was, was touched by all the talking about uh veganism and vegetarianism i'm considering de- becoming a vegetarian after this i think that's a step a lot of people can take and um i really think that c- it could help make a difference
13: be veg
3: go green
7: save the planet
3: for more details please visit www.suprememastertv.com forward slash w o w